Hey everyone, welcome to the Hand Tools and Techniques Woodworking Podcast. I'm your host, Bob Rosieski, answering your questions and bringing you tips and tricks to help you get the most out of your time in the shop. Have you ever wondered about the usefulness of in-cannel gouges? Are you curious about how long certain tasks should take when doing them by hand? Would you like to start sharpening your own handsaws, but you have more questions than answers? I'll discuss these topics and more today on Hand Tools and Techniques. Thanks for joining me for this quasi-inaugural episode of Hand Tools and Techniques for April 12th, 2017. Nice to be back on the air again. For the folks who've been following my musings for years, thanks for sticking with me and joining me for this new chapter in my woodworking journey. For those of you that are new to the show, welcome. You might be wondering why I'm referring to this episode as quasi-inaugural, so I'll give you a bit of, brief bit of history. So back in 2009, I started a video podcast that I called Hand Tools and Techniques, and I regularly filmed and produced videos for that podcast until around 2014. You can still find all of that video content on my YouTube channel. Just go to YouTube and search for my name, Bob Rosieski, and you'll find my channel. At the time that I stopped producing video content, um, life had just gotten too busy and you know I just wasn't able to continue filming videos on a regular basis. But the plan was always to get back to podcasting when the time was right. So here I am, three years later, and uh, I'm ready to stick my toe back into audio content production but not quite ready to get back into filming and editing video just yet. Um, I do hope to get back to doing so at some point in the future, but uh, right now I'm just not there yet. Uh, my current workshop is is really just not conducive to filming high-quality video content. My family and I are currently in the middle of building a new home, and my current shop is more of a dilapidated shed. And it's kind of dark with open stud walls and poor lighting and bad acoustics and no heating, and, you know, it just isn't what uh, I would consider the right place for making quality video content. Um, but once our new house is constructed and completed, I do have plans to build a brand new workshop, which will hopefully be my foray back into making video content. You know, I'd really like to film the construction of the shop itself, so I think that would be uh, neat to share with everybody. But for now, I'm happy to at least be able to put together an audio show in order to get back into another form of content production to complement the writing that I do on my blog, which you can find on my website at brfinewoodworking.com. So with uh, my brief history of content production out of the way, let's get right into the show by answering some questions. So the first question comes from Glenn Thompson, and Glenn says, I'm doing more and more of my woodworking by hand, and I really enjoy it. With that being said, I don't finish projects at the rate that I did when I was using more power tools. I'm not really looking for shortcuts, but I'd love to have more data on how long certain tasks take to do by hand. Uh, For example, ripping a 24-inch board, cutting dovetails for a 4-inch deep drawer, cutting 8 mortises and 8 tenons for a table, um, and I'm sure I could keep going and going with other tasks. Sometimes I only get 30 minutes in my shop, and knowing what I can start and finish gives me a better idea of what to tackle when I'm short on time. Also, I feel like I'm still learning, and knowing how long an experienced woodworker takes to finish a task would give me something to work towards. So Glenn, you're not going to like my answer to this question. It's probably going to seem like I'm waffling and not actually answering the question, 
But the truth of the matter is it depends. And it depends upon so many factors that it's difficult to even start to come up with any kind of standard estimate for how long it takes to complete a task. It depends on the experience level of the individual. It depends on the condition of the person's tools. It depends on the species and dimensions of the stock. It depends on the size of the joinery being cut. So for me to say it takes two minutes to rip a board with a handsaw would really only be accurate with a lot of qualifiers. But I'll try to give you a couple examples with, with the qualifiers so that you can get an idea at least of how fast I can work when I'm really just focusing on the work and not trying to explain myself or document it for a blog or a podcast or anything like that. So the first is the, the two minutes for ripping that I just mentioned. Um, if you actually want to see this for yourself, you can find a video of it on my YouTube channel. And the video is simply called Ripping a Board. The qualifier being this was a rough sawn four quarter walnut board. So it was a full one inch thick. And it was about 36 inches long. Had the board been longer or thicker or of a different species of wood, that time would have been longer or shorter. Um, also, if I was using a more aggressive or less aggressive saw, that would also impact the time. Um, as would using a saw that was not as sharp. I, I don't really remember the condition that that saw was in, but if it was sharper, it may have been gone faster. Or if it was not as sharp, uh, it, you know, it would have taken longer. So you can you can start to see how many different variables there are to this and why it can be so difficult to answer that question. Another example I can point you to for my own experimenting would be flattening the face of a board. And again, you can see this for yourself on my YouTube channel by watching episode 27 of my old podcast. And in that episode, I plane the face of a three foot long, 10 inch wide walnut board in about five and a half minutes. And that was while talking and explaining the process to the camera. But again, if that board had been longer or if it was oak or maple instead of walnut, um, I would expect that it would take me at least double the amount of time to play in the face of that board. One more example I can give you was a, a time that I was demonstrating at a woodworking show. And I don't have a YouTube video of this one, so you just have to trust me. But I was chopping a mortise in a leg for a table that I was building. And as I was chopping the mortise, some wise guy decided to let me know how much faster I could do it with a router. So, you know, I chuckled along with him, and I kept working while I was talking to him about the process. And I finished that mortise in about four minutes. And then, of course, you know, I asked him if he could set up his router that fast just to, to get my point across. Um, but again, I was working in walnut. Um, this mortise was about four inches long. I was using a three-eighth inch wide mortise chisel, and the mortise was about an inch and a quarter deep. Now, if it were pine, I'd have gone much, much faster and if it were oak, it would definitely have taken me longer. So my point is you may be able to get a rough idea of how long some of these tasks to take to do by hand, but it's going to be a very rough idea because there are just so many variables that can influence how long the task takes. More importantly, though, I would encourage you not to really worry about how long it takes you to do anything in the shop. I mean, the whole point of being in the shop for most of us is to take a break from deadlines and timetables and just try to relax. So, you know, shop time is supposed to be leisure time for the majority of us, and holding ourselves to some kind of artificial time constraint is really anything but relaxing. 
So I don't, I say, don't worry about how long it takes you just, you know, have fun, enjoy your time in the shop, whatever little time you have, you know, you'll finish your projects eventually. And even if you don't, at least you enjoy the time that you had to work on them. At least that's, that's the way that I look at it. So the next question comes from Steve M and Steve says, I'm interested in techniques for making dados, rebates, simple molding profiles, etc. When you lack the proper period tools. Also, what are some affordable current production tools that can be substituted for period tools, such as dado, rabbit, and molding planes? I do enjoy watching you use period tools, but locating them in good condition can be a full-time job and break the piggy bank, especially for those of us on the left coast where they all have to be imported. So Steve, I feel your pain. Um, even out here on the East Coast, finding these old wooden planes can be quite a task unless you are in a very antique tool-rich area, someplace like New England or to some extent around the Philadelphia area. Um, you may be able to have an easier time finding them. But even when you do find them in these areas, 9 out of 10 of them really aren't worth bothering with. eBay can work, but it's often hit or miss because you, you can't actually inspect the tools before you buy them. So you really have to rely on pictures provided by the seller who's trying to sell the tool. So, you know, take what you what you can get out of that. Um, and even with really good pictures, you're still taking a chance. I've probably bought just as many unusable wooden planes from eBay and Internet tool dealers as I have usable ones. But the period wooden planes that I used to use in my videos are not the only options. In fact, other than my hollows and rounds, I don't even have most of those old wooden planes anymore. When we moved to southwestern Virginia a couple years ago, I had to give up my climate-controlled workshop and move my tools into a dilapidated, unheated shed. Well, the humidity here in the mountains really played havoc on the wooden bodies of most of my old wooden planes, and I got really tired of maintaining them and constantly retuning them. So I sold most of them and went back to using metal planes for most things, and I really haven't felt any disadvantage at all because of it. Um, for dados, rather than using the old wooden dado planes that I used to have, these days I'm just using a chisel and a router plane. I'll knife and maybe saw the shoulders if, if it's a deeper dado where the saw is helpful. And then hog out most of the waste with a chisel. And then just level the bottom of the dado with a router plane. You know, it's a, it's a little slower than using a dado plane. But once you get into the groove, it's really not that much slower. And in terms of the tools, you know, router planes are one of the most common tools found in old tool shops and on eBay. The Stanley 71 and 71 and a half can be had very reasonably. And you're pretty safe buying these on eBay because there's, there's really not a whole lot that can be wrong with them. Um, for myself, I actually went a step further and got the Lee Nielsen router plane. Their router plane is only $140, which I think is really a good deal, especially when you consider what some of the old Stanleys are going for on eBay these days. I've actually seen some old Stanleys sell for more than the price of a new Lee Nielsen or, or Veritas router plane, which in my opinion is insane because, you know, router planes are not a rare tool, but, you know, the market is what it is. For rabbits, there are actually quite a few options. Probably the least expensive option is an old metal rabbit plane like the Stanley 78. Um, again, these are not rare tools, and they can be had fairly reasonably. Just make sure all the parts are there, and for the most part, you should be good to go. 
like a router plane, they are a pretty safe buy on eBay as long as they look to be in good shape because, again, there isn't a lot to go wrong with them. You can also go with a rabbiting block plane, but I tend to like something a little bit more substantial, so I like a full-size rabbiting plane. Um, I went with the Veritas Skew Rabbit plane when I sold my wooden moving filister because I really wanted a skewed iron. And for most of the antique um, rabbit planes, the, the metal versions, most of them don't have a skewed iron. So if you're looking for a skewed iron, you're either going to end up with a very rare uh, antique metal plane or, you know, you just go with the Veritas. And again, for what you're getting, I think the Veritas is, is very reasonably repriced and, you know, it's pretty much bomb proof. And the last one you mentioned was molding planes for simple profiles. These can actually be the easiest to replace if you don't have your heart set on using a plane to do the task. And that's because the, the simplest and cheapest way to make simple molding profiles is with a scratch stock. And you just cut and file an old card scraper or handsaw to the profile that you want. You mount it in a wooden block and then you go ahead and scratch your molding. Um, it won't be quite as fast as a molding plane, but it, it sure is a whole lot cheaper. Especially when the only real alternative to buying used wooden molding planes and tuning them up yourself is to buy new ones from someone like Matt Bickford or, or Old Street Tool. But I've used scratch stocks for years and... and for short lengths of simple moldings, they really work well in, in most woods. And you can actually find an article on how to make a scratch stock um, on my blog. And I'll put a link to that article in the show notes. So, Steve, I, ho I hope that gives you a few ideas. You know, there really are a lot of options. And while the old wooden planes can be really nice to use, they're really not the only solution by any means. So our last cu question comes from Jay Pierce. Jay says, I can't remember if I read it on your blog or maybe an old post of yours on one of the message boards, but I remember you commenting on the usefulness of in-canal gouges. I've recently become quite enamored with a set that I got on eBay, and if my admittedly sketchy memory isn't deceiving me, and it was you that had expressed a fondness for these gouges, I'd love to hear your comments on them, both in terms of use and in regards to maintenance and sharpening. So Jay, your memory is likely not deceiving you, and it probably was me that you heard about these gouges from. I've been lurking and participating in a, a great many of the message boards for many years, and very rarely have I seen anyone talk about these gouges other than me. Um, I've also talked about them in a few of my old podcasts, and I've written about them in Popular Woodworking Magazine. Um, I've certainly said it before, but I think in-canal gouges are one of the most underappreciated and underutilized tools that are available to us. So for those of you who don't know what an in-canal gouge is, let me back up a second. A gouge is nothing more than a, a curved chisel. The profile can be slightly curved or it can be deeply curved into a shape approximating the letter U. Now you're probably most familiar with gouges being used by carvers. But these type of gouges are referred to as out-canal gouges because they have the bevel ground on the outside of the curve. Now, if you aren't going to do any carving, out-canal gouges probably won't be of much use to you. In-canal gouges, on the other hand, have the bevel ground on the inside of the curve. They're not really useful for carving, but they are extremely useful to furniture makers and other woodworkers who work with concave curves. Um, luthiers, you know, furniture makers, um, think things like 
curved table aprons, cabriole legs, guitar necks, that sort of thing. In-candle gouges are the pairing chisel of the gouge world. So while a straight chisel can be used to pair outside curves nice and smooth, it's really not as useful for pairing inside curves when the radius starts to get somewhat tight. However, an in-candle gouge can be used to create and smooth inside curves extremely efficiently. So efficiently that in many cases, no additional shaping or smoothing would be required. You pretty much just go straight to finish. To see this in action, you can actually check out episode 16 of my old video podcast on my YouTube channel. In that episode, I used an in-candle gouge to create the curve on the aprons of the Portinger tea table that I was making. And it literally took seconds to do, and the tool left a surface that was ready for finish. Um, I used it one again in episode 46 to cope the molding on the inside edge of the cabinet door I was building. Now, in terms of maintenance and sharpening, these tools can be a little bit challenging, but they shouldn't be seeing as much use as your bench chisels. And for the most part, you should really only be pairing with them. So their edges shouldn't be getting so worn or damaged that they need frequent grinding. If you do buy an antique set that does need some grinding, you basically have two choices. The cheapest but the most labor-intensive way is to wrap some sandpaper around a dowel. Now, I restored my first set of in-candle gouges this way, and it was a bunch of work and took a really long time, but after some perseverance, I was able to reestablish a decent straight primary bevel. The other option is to use some kind of power grinding method. You can use small grinding stones for something like a Dremel, um, but these tools tend to, the stones tend to glaze real quickly. And then they either stop cutting completely or they, they overheat the steel in the gouge. So my chosen method is to use a grinding wheel for my bench grinder that has a radius on the edge. So I went and bought a quarter inch thick Norton grinding wheel from Tools for Working Wood. And then I used a diamond wheel dresser to shape the edge of the grinding wheel to a semicircle with an eighth inch radius. And then I use this grinding wheel on my bench grinder for molding plane irons and in-candle gouges and just about any other grinding task that um, in, involves a concave bevel. The only thing with the bench grinder is that for in-candle gouges, you have the added challenge that you, you kind of need to grind them freehand because they don't really register on any kind of tool rest. So you kind of have to play with how you're going to support the tool um, and present it to the wheel with a, an in-candle gouge because they can be a little bit challenging to, to grind on a bench grinder. Now, you're also not going to find a honing guide to handle in-candle gouges, so you really need to get comfortable honing freehand. Now, you can use finer grits of sandpaper wrapped around dowels, but my preference is to use soft and hard Arkansas slip stones. I just think the stones do a, a better, faster job of, of forming a wire edge and polishing the secondary bevel than the sandpaper does. Um, and I do use a secondary bevel on these gouges. There's really no reason to hone and polish the entire bevel of these tools. It's just way more work than you need to do. Um, 
one thing you can safely use to polish the bevel of these tools is a hard felt wheel charged with honing compound, um, like a buffing wheel that you would put in your bench grinder. I have a hard knife edge felt wheel that I shape the edge of into a small radius instead of a knife edge. And then I charge that felt wheel with green stropping compound and use that to polish the inside bevel of the gouge. And then I use the flat side of the wheel to polish the outside flat edge of the gouge as well. And this puts a, a razor edge on the gouge in, in pretty much minimal time. So using pretty much just the felt wheel or a, or a strop, I rarely have to go back to this, the slip stones for these gouges. And I almost never have to go back to the grinder since I never use them with a mallet. So yeah, I think every furniture maker should have a small set of in-candle gouges. To me, they are extremely useful tools. So that's all from the mailbox for this week. If you have feedback, questions, or topic suggestions for the show, just go to brfinewoodworking.com slash contact and fill out the contact form or send me an email. Or you can also leave a voicemail for me at 276-601-3123. After the break, I'll be right back with today's main topic. Hey everyone, it's Bob, and I don't actually have sponsor copy for you today, but I do have a way that you can support the show without any additional cost to you. I know a lot of you already shop online for your woodworking tools and other needs. Well, did you know that you can actually send a little love my way just by shopping online like you would normally do? The next time that you need to buy a woodworking tool, book, DVD, or just about anything else online, head on over to my website at brfinewoodworking.com first. In the footer of the website, or on the right side of the blog, you'll see several affiliate links for Highland Woodworking, Shop Woodworking, and Amazon.com. Just click on one of those links and you'll be taken from my website to the merchant that you want to shop with. Then just shop as you normally would. Highland Woodworking, Shop Woodworking, and Amazon will know that you were sent to them through my website, and in return, they'll send me a small percentage of your total purchase as a commission. It costs you nothing more than you were already planning to spend, but just by going through the links on my blog, you send a little love my way to help to keep the show going. So don't forget, go to brfinewoodworking.com and click the affiliate links in the website footer or the right side of the blog next time you shop online. Thanks for your support, everyone. I really appreciate it. So today's main topic comes from a question sent in by Wayne on sharpening handsaws. Actually, Wayne had several questions on sharpening handsaws, so I'm going to try and address each one. But I'm also going to touch on several other finer points of saw sharpening for anyone who might be interested in starting to sharpen their own saws, um, which in my not-so-humble opinion, anyone who uses hand saws should really be doing. Uh, but I digress. So here are Wayne's questions. First, he says, I have an old, good-quality Stanley miter box with a 26-inch saw. I was wondering if I should sharpen the teeth different compared to regular crosscut saws. With my crosscut saws, I put 15 degrees of rake and 15 degrees of fleam at a standard 11 points per inch. The reason that I ask is that the cut is straight across the wood as opposed to cutting at an angle like a regular hand saw. I've also read that picture framers have their own configuration for smooth and faster cuts. I use a range of woods for furniture, most typically in the moderate hardness grouping such as cherry to walnut. Could my setup be improved? Also, occasionally I hear woodworkers extolling the virtues of angling or sloping the file in the gullets, especially for crosscut saws. The approach, I believe, involves angling up towards the tooth being filed, enhancing the crosscut chisel-shaped tooth. 
Apparently it makes the saw cut more aggressively, but possibly with a rougher cut. What are your thoughts on when, if at all, to slope the gullets? Finally, I was reading Walter Rose's book, The Village Carpenter, and under the tools chapter it says that teeth should not all be shaped at the same pitch. Their method was to file those at the point or end at an angle of about 60 degrees and those at the heel at about 30 degrees. All the other teeth between graduated to those two standards. The saws thus sharpened did indeed glide easily through the wood, increasing in bite from point to heel on each downward thrust. What do you think Rose was referring to? Possibly rake angle and a progressive pitch approach? If this were the case, then the angle would seem to have almost no bite, as I think of most saws having a rake angle between 0 and 15 degrees. Okay, so before we get into Wayne's questions, uh, let's take a minute to define a few terms for those of you who may not be familiar with them, because I know not everybody sharpens their saws, or you know, some of you would like to start sharpening your saws and, and aren't quite sure um, you know, about some of the basic terms and things like that. So, you know, when you listen to saw guys like myself and, and Wayne, you'll often hear terms like points per inch, teeth per inch, rake, fleam, uh, thrown around like everyone knows what we're talking about. Unfortunately, we often forget that not everyone does know what these terms mean. So, uh, let me go through them for a second, you know, for those of you that are, are new to saw sharpening. So PPI or TPI, um, this is points per inch or teeth per inch. Um, and they really just refer to the tooth spacing. Points per inch refers to, as the name implies, number of points in one inch. Um, and it is measured from point to point. So if you put the zero point of a ruler on one point, you would start counting with that point, And you would count every point until you hit the one inch mark. Now for teeth per inch, you would put the zero point on a gullet and you're going to actually count whole teeth. You're not going to count gullets. You're going to count full teeth. So you put the zero of the ruler uh, at the bottom of the first gullet, and then you count whole teeth until you hit the one inch mark. And what you're going to find is that there's always going to be one more point per inch than teeth per inch, because if you think about it, you know, go back and listen to what I just said again and actually do it, what you realize is that when you count points per inch, you're counting the zero point. And when you count the teeth per inch, you're not counting the zero point. You're actually counting the first whole tooth. So so one doesn't come until you hit the second gullet. So you're always going to have one more point per inch than teeth per inch. But that's really not important. Just understand that it's a way of measuring the size of the teeth in a tooth spacing. So the second term is, is rake or rake angle. And what this refers to is the angle that the front of the tooth makes with the tooth line. So if you turn a saw upside down with the teeth pointing up, and you were to draw a straight line from the tooth at the toe of the saw to the tooth at the heel of the saw, we'll call that straight line the tooth line. The rake angle is an angle that the front of the tooth makes with that line. So when the tooth is standing perfectly vertical, perfectly perpendicular to the tooth line, we call that zero degrees of rake. As the tooth begins to lean towards the handle of the saw, we consider that increasing rake. Now most saws, um, as, as Wayne mentions, are going to have rake angles between 0 and 15 degrees typically. So I'm actually going to refer to Wayne's last question. We're going to answer that first because we're talking about rake angle now. So most people these days are filing between 0 and 15 degrees of rake. So if you're filing a rip saw, usually you're somewhere between 0 and 8 degrees, maybe all the way up to 10 degrees. 
For a crosscut saw, you're usually using somewhere around 15 degrees of rake. Some people will go a little higher. I sometimes will go as high as 20 degrees of rake for a crosscut saw. But usually, 0 to 20 is about max. Rose was talking about a term called that he called pitch. And actually, pitch is a term that used to be used to uh, refer to what we call the rake angle today. So they're, they're sort of synonymous. Sometimes today we get a little bit confused because... Some years ago, folks started using the term pitch to refer to the tooth spacing, and that sort of made things confusing. I think it, it's come from, you know, the engineers among us um, and, and, and those of us using, you know, machine screws, machinists and engineers, because machine screws use a, a term called threads per inch to define the, the pitch or how fine a, um, a screw is. So, and that is referred to as the pitch, how many threads per inch that the screw has. So I think some years ago, someone started using the term pitch to define the number of teeth per inch or points per inch in a saw, and it kind of stuck, but um, it's not the traditional use of the term. The traditional use of the term pitch actually referred to the rake angle. So what Rose was talking about is the rake angle and actually a progressive rake going from less steep at the toe, or I'm sorry, more steep at the toe, to less steep at the heel. And essentially what you have there is a progressive rake. So the saw is going to get more aggressive as it goes towards the heel. The cut is going to have more bite. Now what Rose is referring to are some pretty high rake angles, 30 degrees to 60 degrees. You know, that saw certainly is going to glide through the wood, but it's really not going to be very aggressive. But one thing to keep in mind is that prior to the late 1800s, there really is no reference or mention of fleam being used on saws. And we'll talk about fleam in a second. But fleam is essentially what makes a saw a crosscut saw. And in old text, there really is no mention of fleam being used on saws. So it's quite possible that earlier saws were all filed like rip saws. The Craftsman in Williamsburg actually file all of their saws this way because of the lack of historical evidence of there being fleam in, in saws. So by increasing the rake angle to these real high angles that Rose is talking about, between 30 and 60 degrees, a rip-filed saw would actually be much easier to use for cross-cutting. These days, because we add fleam to cross-cut saws, again, I'll talk about fleam in a second, but because we use fleam in cross-cut saws, these really high rake angles really aren't a necessity. and we can, we can file at a more aggressive rake angle, add some fleam to the saw, and that will allow it to cross-cut very smoothly and still cut quickly. So that brings us to our last term, which is fleam or fleam angle or bevel angle. The fleam angle is essentially what makes a cross-cut saw a cross-cut saw. If you consider sharpening a rip saw where the saw is filed um, perpendicular to the saw plate, so at 90 degrees straight across the teeth, it leaves the front surface of the tooth perfectly square to the side of the saw plate. That's how we would file a rip saw. Well, in order to file a crosscut saw, we angle that file slightly to the saw plate. So it might be somewhere between 20 and 30 degrees typically. And what that does is it puts a knife edge or a bevel on the edge of that tooth. And that's what allows the tooth to slice across the fibers. It doesn't rip very well when you do that. Think about trying to knife a line along the grain, of, the grain of the wood. So it doesn't really rip real well, but because it has that knife edge on it, it really slices across the fibers real well, and that's what makes a saw crosscut so well. 
So that flame angle is what makes a saw a crosscut saw. So if we go back then to Wayne's first question, he talks about different flame angles and different rake angles for a miter box saw. So when I sharpen miter box saws, I sharpen them with 15 degrees of rake, and that's the term we just talked about, and 20 to, uh, 25 to 30 degrees of flame. And that really is going to allow the saw to cut very smoothly. I also use the absolute least amount of set that I can get away with, and then stone the sides of the teeth after setting to smooth out the cut even more. Um, and what this does is it really helps the saw cut very clean. That way, you know, it's possible for cuts from a miter box saw to go straight to assembly if the cut is, is nice and clean. The teeth are going to dull a little sooner with a high flame angle, you know, like 30 degrees or so. But if you can sharpen your saws yourself, this really shouldn't be a concern. You know, you may just have to sharpen that saw a little bit more often. Um, but I do like a, a much higher flame angle in a miter box saw because I want to get the highest quality cut that I can from that saw. When I'm mitering moldings for a furniture piece, for example, I really don't want to have to clean up every single cut with a plane or, or a, a shooting board, miter shooting board, if I don't absolutely have to. If I can make that cut as clean as possible right from the saw and then go right to assembly, it makes the process that much faster. If you only plan to use the miter box for straight cuts, like for sizing stock, a clean cut across the end grain really isn't that important. But I can't really imagine why you would want to go to the trouble of using a miter box for sizing parts when the end grain cut usually really isn't that important in the first place because it's buried in a joint, you know, like the end grain of a tenon or something like that, or the the cut is cleaned up after the joint is assembled, something like uh, the end grain of a dovetail. Similarly, for like tenon shoulders, I'll knife the shoulder line before I cut it to get the cleanest joint possible and then slightly undercut the shoulder with a chisel to make sure that the outside edge of that shoulder is what closes nice and tight. So I'm really not concerned that much with saw cut quality there because I'm going to clean that cut up. But the miter box can really make tight miter cuts right from the saw if that saw is tuned up well and the box is adjusted well. So, you know, if you go with a little bit higher flame angle, it'll cut cleaner. Um, you just might have to sharpen that saw a little bit more often. So then if we get to, to Wayne's second question, which will actually be the last question because we already answered Wayne's last question, he's asking about sloped gullets. So let me try to take a second to try and explain sloped gullets for those of you that may not be familiar with the term. So most saw filing instruction would tell you to push the file straight across the saw teeth, holding the file parallel to the floor. So when you work in this way, the only difference between filing crosscut and rip is that you file 90 degrees to the saw blade for a rip saw, and then at some angle to the saw blade, which we call the flame angle, for crosscut saws. Well, when you're filing slope gullets, that introduces a third angle to the equation. Now, the slope angle is actually the angle that the file makes with the floor. So when you're filing sloped gullets, instead of holding the file parallel to the floor, you're going to drop the handle and sharpen the teeth by pushing the file up at an angle. So if you asked me about slope gullets a year or two ago, I probably would have told you that I never file slope gullets and that they're, for the most part, a waste of time. I have tried them in the past, and I really wasn't all that impressed with them, so I, I didn't think they were worth the extra trouble. But these days I may be changing my tune, but only in certain circumstances. 
I still don't think sloped gullets really do anything to help improve the cut of a well-filed cross-cut saw. I've never found any improvement over my typical 15 degrees of rake and, and 25 to 30 degrees of fleam. So I don't bother adding slopes, uh, sloped gullets to a cross-cut saw. But I may change my tune for rip saws. Uh, my revelation came about a year ago when I was asked by a friend to file a large rip saw made around 1870. He wanted me to, to keep the saw in its current configuration, and he thought it was filed cross-cut. Now, when I received the saw and looked it over, I really thought that it was a rip-filed saw. It was five points per inch, and the teeth really looked to me, when I looked at the front of the teeth, to be filed rip. And at five points per inch, it really would make an awfully coarse cross-cut saw. But he still, you know, he wasn't convinced, and he asked me to look closer at the teeth, and that's when I noticed it. So the front of each tooth really did lack a distinct bevel, um, just that I has, had observed, like you would see on a rip saw. However, when I look at the back of each tooth, it did have a distinct bevel that my friend observed, and this would be what you would expect to see on a crosscut saw. So after I thought about it for a couple of minutes, it occurred to me that the last person that sharpened the saw did so by significantly sloping the gullets. So I went ahead and sharpened my friend's saw consistent with the original tooth geometry, just like he asked me to do. The rake angle was about you know, 10 degrees or so, no fleam, but there was about a 45 degree slope to the gullets. Now, as I always do when I sharpen a saw for somebody, I tried the saw after sharpening it to make sure it was cutting properly before I sent it back. And when I did, I was quite surprised by how smooth that saw felt in the cut, even though it was quite an aggressive saw at five points per inch. So, these days, I'm not totally against slope gullets, but I really need to do a little bit more experimenting with them before I can give them a, a definite thumbs up or thumbs down. Uh, I still don't use them on crosscut saws, but they may have a place when filing rip saws. Uh, ask me again in a year or two, and I may be able to give you a, a more firm answer. In the meantime, I'd suggest giving them a try for yourself to see if you like them. Uh, I'm, I'm only one data point, so you might have a different opinion than me after trying them for yourself. So that's going to do it for this week's show. I want to thank you all for joining me and for allowing me to do this because without your support, none of this would be possible. As a reminder, if you have feedback, questions, or topic suggestions, you can use the contact form or email address on the website at brfinewoodworking.com slash contact. You can also leave me a voicemail at 276-601-3123 and I'll play your voicemails on a future episode. If you're looking for the show notes for today's episode, you can find them on my website at brfinewoodworking.com slash htt001. It stands for Hand Tools and Techniques, episode 001. In the show notes, you can find links to some of the videos that I talked about in today's show, uh, as well as any previous blog posts that I talked about. You can also find links to follow me on all my social media accounts like Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Google+. Finally, if you'd like to support the show, you have multiple options for doing so. You can become a supporter on Patreon, you can make a direct donation through PayPal, and you can shop with one of our affiliates. You'll find links for all these options in the show notes and at brfinewoodworking.com support. So thanks again for listening, and until next time, stay sharp, everybody.